Hello and welcome to the History of Present Illness podcast. My name is Gunsham and I'm joined by my co-host Aisha. Hi everyone. We are two physicians who are interested in discovering the history behind the current practice of medicine. In each episode, we will delve deep into the history of various diseases, devices, innovations and people that have shaped the way we practice medicine today. Join us for this week's episode on the history of endoscopy part 2. So, just to recap on um part 1 we basically started off with sort of the philosophy of endoscopy and how the ancient people viewed the GI tract and basically the philosophy of when there's food stuck in the esophagus what should we do about it and that was the initial form of creating devices to be able to go in and do something about something stuck in an esophagus and then later on we developed a lot more technology uh, better illumination um electricity was invented so all these separate inventions allowed us to have a basically semi-flexible endoscope by the late 1800s early 1900s and that's sort of where we are and it's becoming it's picking up as a profession and another theme we talked about in the last episode was that physicians of that day weren't really specialists um today we have a special like a specialist for every single body system but back then we didn't necessarily have that it was just physicians who were very holistic in their approach they treated every single part of the body they treated they tried to treat every single patient because back then patients all they knew was okay here's a physician i need to go see a physician so they would come in with every problem so you saw a lot of these physicians who were famous for other things a lot of gi surgeries um maybe even uh discovering anatomical structures in the brain but these people would use whatever knowledge they had in these other specialties and try and apply it to the gi tract and we're sort of going to see that theme going forward in the second part with um the various role model physicians that helped create this technology at the end of the 1800s there are some key technologies that should be talked about and key inventions that should be talked about that helped with the creation of the endoscope that we see today i sort of talked about this in the recap but i just wanted to go over the advances in technology again in the 1700s volta creates a battery and that allows for people to store the electricity and make it more portable in the past they basically had uh, huge batteries that would require operators and a lot of time and money to be able to help set it up but volta basically helps create a battery that that is more um commercial um and allows ease of access as well In 1820s to 21 um Ampere finds the relationship between electricity and magnetism that becomes key in basing basically being able to transfer electricity through some long distances and again it's it's to be able to create batteries that are more accessible in 1800s Ohm and Faraday also improve upon these findings and that's a whole another physics lecture that you can listen to on other podcasts not this one because we are not physicists <laughs> but basically these allow edison to make a very efficient electric lamp in 
that electric lamp ends up becoming the precursor to what is the light source or the illumination source that goes at the end of the modern day endoscope. So it's quite actually amazing that within 20 years from 1878 to 1900s, you have a fully functional rigid endoscope that has an illumination source at its end where you illuminate what you're looking at at its source. Physical materials are also invented that are more conducive to instruments like this. Um, of course, wires are required to conduct the electricity. You also have to create devices that don't get hot as much inside the patient's body with electricity nearby. So that's very important. Lenses and optics are also uh, invented steadily from basically the 1500s all the way to the 1800s. Basically, the the endoscopes in the later part of the 1800s had a train of lenses, but the more lenses you use, the poorer the image quality got and light intensity also diminished. So it was always a battle with these early instrument makers of balancing the number of lenses you got and the complexity of the lenses so that you still got an image that was usable, that you could actually make diagnoses off of. But also the light intensity so that it's actually visible at the end. So it's a very complex interplay between physics and medicine. So next step in the early 1900s is to change the rigid endoscope that Michaelich basically perfected into a flexible esophoscope. And it really went along with three overlapping sort of movements in the field of esophagoscopy. One was the open tube system. An open tube just means what an open tube is. It's just a long metal pipe with one hole, uh, at the hole at one end and a hole at the other end. So basically it's a viewing system for your eye into whatever you're looking at, right? And there are rigid esophagoscopes and some gastroscopes that are also open tube systems that have no other instrumentation in there, very little light, but people like Chevalier Jackson in Philadelphia, um, Hill and Herschel in England, there are huge proponents of this, but at the end of the day, these type of open tube rigid esophagoscopes required a, a lot of skill and a lot of practice and these individuals were very dexterous at what they did, and they were able to get some good results with that, but it wasn't necessarily applicable to, to other people. So the next movement that, these were all simultaneous movements, by the way, and they sort of all converged together. The next movement was rigid tubes with optical systems, right? So this is not exactly an open tube. You have lenses in between whatever rigid tube you have to basically amplify whatever image you're viewing. And actually Hill and Herschel in England were also trying to develop this off of their open tubes um, with lenses, but they also included an insufflation channel. Some prototypes back then also had prisms and those would also try and deflect light and illuminate better as well. And the third kind of movement that was going on in the early 1900s was creating a flexible tube that could be straightened after introduction. People were very annoyed by the fact that the human anatomy wasn't, you know, a straight line. And 
I had a history teacher, a geography teacher who would say, all straight lines are human made, you know, and there isn't a straight line going from the mouth to stomach. So people naturally wanted a tube that was flexible on introduction and could also be flexible going down the esophagus and also be flexible when viewing the stomach. So that there was a push to create and invent devices that that could do that. So these three overlapping movements were going on at the same time. And naturally, there were people who were trying to do all three. So that's that's where the Schindler gastroscope comes into play in 1922. I'll talk about his gastroscope first, and then I'll talk about the individual Schindler, because he's got an amazing story and a lot to learn from, I think, personally. Um, but his gastroscope was introduced in 1922. It became very widely popular for the next decade because of its ease and safety. So first, an obturator was introduced. An obturator, Aisha, do you want to explain what an obturator is? So if you think about an obturator, it's kind of like a tube inside a tube, but the inner tube is the rigid part. So whenever you're introducing it, it's you introduce both the tubes, but once you are in the desired location, you remove the inner rigid part. So the outer flexible part is still within the body. Right, exactly. So... Um... He had a straight open outer tube that he introduced into the stomach. Then he replaced the obturator, which was on the inside, with an optical tube where it carried all of the lenses and everything you need to get an image at the end. So basically with the Schindler gastroscope, experience was critical. No visualization of the esophagus and some key parts of the stomach, but it was very safe at the end of the day. It's a blind open tube, so you can't view everything while you are introducing the tube but you can view the end result which is the stomach so you can't view the pathway that you that you basically introduce this instrument into but it was very safe there's very few negative outcomes with this there's another guy around the same time named sternberg who claimed to have a better gastroscope than schindler's gastroscope had a smaller diameter but the key was that his was metal tipped and Schindler strongly disagreed with this method and thought the metal tip was unsafe and that it could cause perforations. Sternberg is very adamant that his is better and even goes so far as to invite a prominent physician named Sauerbruck in Munich and demonstrate it in front of a whole gallery of people on, on how he uses his own gastroscope. He basically kills a patient in the process. Um, wow. And it's a very sad actual, it's an actual very sad outcome for this guy. But he sort of chooses an unsuitable patient with basically considerable difficulty and some various anatomy. He's not able to introduce the device very easily, but he still forces his way through in this presentation. I guess in this, in the, yeah. There's no way for him to know that the patient was unsuitable. Yeah, I think the, I think the, the reason that he's sort of viewed badly upon in history is because if you have a difficult introduction and there's some difficulty with anatomy, then you should probably abort the procedure like any normal physician would. <laughs> but I think he's under a lot of pressure and that's no excuse for this, but he, for this purpose of demonstration, uh, forces his instrument further and further. And 12 hours later, the patient had 
symptoms of what we think now are severe mediastinitis um, and died of partial rupture of her esophagus. And basically proves Schindler correct. Sauerbruck publishes this case and doesn't really differentiate between Sauerbruck's gastroscope and Schindler's gastroscope and laments all gastroscopy in his in his publication and says all of it is too dangerous and the field itself is dangerous. And basically gastroscopy gets a setback in the 1920s because of this. But as with any publication, there's always counter-publications. I think that any publication like this that's very monumental has counter-publications. So there are a series of publications in the late 1920s who try to prove that Schindler's gastroscope are actually not doing bad and actually have very few bad outcomes. So a guy named Gottstein publishes 2,500 gastroscopy cases in 1926, and only 15 of those were fatal and had fatal perforations. Another guy named Hubner in 1927 publishes the results of questionnaires given to 16 gastroscopists around Europe, and of 3,627 exams, only nine accidents happened, and that also, and only a mortality percent of 0.2 to 0.3%. It is very impressive, and I was very impressed as to how how these publications were able to sort of bring the field back, which it in the nineteen twenties like this isn't this isn't a common practice to have publications of you know two thousand five hundred or three thousand six hundred cases to report upon, you know that's actually more of a modern thing if we if you think about it. Back then, the, the norm of publications was case reports, and, and you would re- you report these case reports, and then you would hope that somebody would look into it and be able to compile these case reports into something. So to talk more about this device, you have to sort of know who Wolf is as well. Schindler and Wolf worked together on creating this device. Wolf was an instrument maker. Going along with the theme of the other podcast that we did, Every groundbreaking physician that we come across also has somebody important that they work with, you know, a non-medical professional who is really good at, at instrument making. So Schindler has many variations of his early gastroscope, and they were on the market. They were widely being used. But Schindler himself was under the impression that it was cumbersome and required considerable expertise. He didn't believe that it could be wide, it could be widely used if there weren't significant changes made. So I think that's pretty impressive too to have the self-realization that your own invention isn't perfect. And he wanted to ensure the safety of patients at the end of the day and thought that even though his was a rigid gastroscope, he wanted to create a more flexible instrument. And That's going back to the three movements that I was talking about in the early 1900s. He basically realizes that he needs to be a part of this movement that create a more flexible instrument. There are also some publications out there that say that 97% of gastroscopists have successful gastric introduction, but examination was only possible of 55% of the stomach, and pyloric visibility only happened in 20% of the time in this procedure. So he felt like those statistics weren't suitable and weren't acceptable. So he meets 
Wolf, who's a prominent instrument maker and an instrument manufacturer in Berlin, who worked with Schindler from 1928 to 32. And they both create the semi-flexible gastroscope. To sort of understand this invention, you have to go back to a patent. Basically in 1919, there's a guy named Lang at, in a Berlin factory who discovered and patented a way to visualize objects through a curved tube that basically had a, a series of lenses at specific distances and at specific angles with a short focal length. Was he creating this as a gastroscope as well or was it some other? No, no, he wasn't. That was interesting. He basically did it for the sake of of illumination and different like uh, physics uh, inventions, basically a product of physics. He uh, was able to calculate very meticulously how light passes through these lenses and, and basically creates this patent. And he doesn't even think about applying this to a gastroscope. And, and um, so it was nothing to do with medicine. That And they, they basically use this patent later. So Wolf and Schindler create this gastroscope where the lower half is flexible and the top half is rigid. Um, the top half has the majority of the optical system, but the flexible part also had uh, some some of the optical system, but could be bent at an angle of almost 34 degrees. They basically realized that if you go any greater than 34 degrees, you lose visibility, and mm. but you can go up to 34 degrees. So that's pretty impressive. Um, it's almost like looking around a corner. So basically, the window of this optical system was unique. It had a side viewing port, whereas the other rigid tubes had uh, a front-facing viewing port. The hole at the end of the rigid tube was the hole that you looked through. But because of this optical system, you can sort of create this mirror system where you you viewed it from the side. The window of the um, optical system is a very unique gastroscope. It has a side viewing port, which means that when you introduce the gastroscope into the stomach, you can view the sides of the stomach, and you can sort of do a 360 precursory view. And then you can further introduce the tube down into the bottom part of the stomach and also do another 360 view. And when you do that and you hit the bottom of the stomach, you have the ability to see the pylorus. And it ends up actually working. Almost 80% of the time pylorus can be viewed through this um, new type of gastroscope, a semi-flexible gastroscope. Um, so next I want to talk about the life of Schindler himself, Rudolf Schindler. He was born in 1888 in Berlin, and he was born half-Jewish. And that becomes pretty important later on in his life. His uncle was an ophthalmologist who inspired him to go into medicine. And as I mentioned before, Europeans get a very broad medical education. He actually ended up liking pathology to begin with, which ended up being very useful for him in the future. And in 1914, um, there's a world war. And he and gets enlisted into the 12th Bavarian Infantry Regiment as a battalion surgeon and pathologist. There he encounters a lot of soldiers who are facing GI issues, and he becomes very interested with the GI tract because of all these soldiers, and he 
feels bad that he can't help them and he thinks that there's more going on. At one point, he even gets dysentery himself. And it's pretty ironic because um, Adolf Hitler is also... Um, he's also in the Bavarian Army Reserve at this time. He's uh, in the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry. So I'm not exact how close the 12th Bavarian Infantry and the 16th Bavaria, Bavarian Reserve Infantry are, but um, they were fighting on the same side of the same war. And Hitler has a lifelong problem of GI problems later on, but he would end up actually sending Schindler into uh, a work camp in the 1930s, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But actually, a lot of these early GI physicians fought in World War One and World War Two, and it's very ironic because <laughs> Adolf Hitler ends up having these GI problems for the rest of his life. So it's sort of like a weird karma situation. <laughs> but um, after the war, um, Schindler moves to Munich where he gets a position um, and becomes an expert with the Elsner gastroscope, which we sort of talked about before, and that's one of the rigid gastroscopes. Based off the Elsner gastroscope, he creates his own gastroscope, and then he would later on make even better gastroscope with Wolf. But in 1922, he marries Gabrielle Winkler, who's a very important person in his life. Obviously, his wife is very important, but in his career as well. She basically, even though she's not a medical professional, she becomes an important clinical assistant throughout his life. In 1922, that's when that Sour Sourbrook incident happens, and he gets a setback in his own profession. It also doesn't help that prior to that incident, he was advocating for a lot of people that gastroscopies should be done in an office setting, that it shouldn't be have to be done in, in, in an operating room. But um, one of his colleagues ends up killing a patient. So he sort of gets tied into that and basically gets laughed at because he's he's been out here saying that gastroscopy should be done in an office setting, <laughs> but at the same time a patient dies. In 1923, he publishes a book called Liebruch und Atlas der Gastroskopie, which means the textbook Atlas of Gastroscopy. Um, apologize for my German. He has this chance meeting with an American gastroenterologist a little after 1923 named Marie Ortmeier, who was touring European medical centers to learn more about gastroenterology. The weird part is that Marie Ortmeier has never heard of Schindler, even though she's an American gastroenterologist, and Schindler has his own uh, endoscope or gastroscope very popular in Europe. And that sort of goes to show how separated medical knowledge is that two like, very prominent gastroenterologists don't really know the top inventions of you know just across the Atlantic Ocean. And I think we've come a long way. But the way she learns about Schindler is because she's touring through Europe and finds the book that he wrote in a Vienna bookshop and likes the book so much that she makes a trip to Munich to learn from him. And this relationship ends up becoming pretty key for him later on with Marie Ortmeier. Marie Ortmeier herself is a very interesting individual. She becomes one of the first um, female gastroenterologists. She becomes one of the first female presidents 
of um, the American Gastroscopic Club or the American Gastroscopic Society, which we'll talk about in a second too. But in 1928 to 32, that's when he starts working with Wolf and he creates that semi-flexible uh, gastroscope and actually then becomes world-renowned and has a very good reputation. But another thing happens at the same time in Germany, Aisha, and that's Hitler and the brown shirts. The brown shirts are basically Hitler's posse who go around creating havoc. Um, there's a whole history with that. But Hitler and the brown shirts are gaining popularities and Nazi Germany is very much Nazi Germany at this time. Schindler's housekeeper was actually angry at him because of a, a termination of her employment. And she basically claimed that Schindler was doing, quote, crimes against innocent Germans, end quote. So basically he gets put into protective custody in Dachau, which ends up becoming a concentration camp. But I think at the time that he was in protective custody, it was still a work labor camp. But they do this in, and the reason that they do this is to, is to do a full investigation of him. But at the end of the day, they do release him. Um, at the time, Hitler and the Nazi party couldn't afford such a scandalous claim because he was so world-renowned at the time because of the semi-flexible uh, gastroscope that they couldn't just put him in jail. And it's still part of the 1930s where they didn't have this autocratic rule yet. In 1934... His family gets a chance to flee, and he gets a faculty position in the University of Chicago through our good friend, Marie Ortmeier. She remembers Schindler very well, and uh, here's what happened to him. She raises uh, finances through various donors and the Refugee Physicians Fund, that which was active in Chicago at the time, and basically gets him a faculty position at the University of Chicago. Mm. And they're very glad to have him. And... He gets a faculty position at Billings Hospital. He's very productive at the Billings Hospital. So I thought that was a very interesting story of somebody who faced a lot of prejudice because he was half Jewish. And basically through luck, he knows somebody who's willing to bring him over and finance his entire family to be moved over to Chicago. Yeah, and also that Dr. Ottmeyer got to know about him through a book. Right. It's so, so lucky. But I, I mean, I think back to those days where, you know, medical knowledge couldn't be right up on the internet. That was the only way she would have ever met him is in a, in a bookshop and like being able to read his book. And that's the only way you would ever know of other medical findings, you know. True. But um, he's very productive teacher at Billings Hospital. He trains over 300 physicians on how to use the gastroscope. He could perform more than 10 gastroscopes every two and a half hours. Wow. Pretty amazing times even for today. His wife, Gabrielle, was very key in his productivity. She basically ran his office, logistics, and she would prep patients. She would bring them in. She was vital to him so that he could keep his clinic going. And if she wasn't able to staff the clinic, he would cancel procedures for the day. But... For every great physician, you get a lot of clashing egos. He ends up butting heads with the chair of his department, Walter Palmer, mainly over the topic of gastritis. So throughout his entire career, Schindler is obsessed with the topic of gastritis, 
because of the soldiers that he encountered in World War One. He keeps going back to those to those patients and saying that he thinks that there's something more going on pathologically with these patients. And he thinks that the field of pathology needs to improve in the field of gastritis. And he, he basically thinks that there's a lot of inflammation going on in the esophagus and the stomach that is causing a lot of patients' problems. He's also a pathologist, right? Right. He, he, was, he started off as a pathologist. And he becomes interested in this whole thing because of GI pathology. But this this whole feud that he has with the chair of his department um, mean, ends up with him not having tenureship, even though he's one of the most productive and smart physicians in, in Billings Hospital. So he gets pissed by this. He doesn't like it. And he actually moves to Loma Linda University in L.A. and works at the VA in L.A. as well. And from here on out, he actually becomes... When a, a, a really big advocate of veterans' health. And he works there for about eight to ten years, I think. Mm. And I don't know what happens, but maybe he gets bored. He takes a position in Brazil in 1958. And mind you, he doesn't know Portuguese. He doesn't oh, wow. speak their language. And he decides to go teach at the University of Minas Gerais in Belo Horizonte. No idea why he does this. But that's also late in his life, in 1958. Two years later, um, Gabe, his wife, Gabriel, becomes sick, and he goes back to L.A. Gabriel dies in 1964. He moves back to Munich after she dies, and he, one year later, remarries his childhood friend, and he dies a couple years after that, in 1968, at the age of 80 years old. But... At the age of 70, he decides to move to Brazil. I have no idea why. And it's sort of hard to know. It's not like he kept a diary or anything. But at the age of 70, he moves to Brazil. He doesn't speak the language. Uh, maybe it's the pursuit of science. Maybe he thought he needed to, to study a new population. I don't know. Another thing that Schindler is very well known for is the creation of the American Gastroscopic Club. So when he was in Chicago... He always thought that there should be some form of organization to sort of talk about ideas in this field of gastroscopy. He was sort of actually initially against creating any type of formal organization because he thought that you were basically creating a separate specialty if you create an organization like that. And he thought that people would assume that you would have to be a very highly specialized physician and limit the use of this instrument if people saw that you only could use it if you're a highly specialized physician. So he was initially against creating um, a formal organization, but he still wanted to create some sort of camaraderie so that he and others can bounce ideas off of each other and, you know, create a medical society where ideas can be shared and, and, and steps can be improved. Um, in 1941, he contacts the popular medical organizations and says, hey, look, I want to create some sort of informal organization, but I'm not stepping on any of your toes. I just want a forum to be able to talk about gastroscopy. So he contacts the American College of Surgeons, the American College of Physicians, uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine, American Board of Surgery, um, and even the American Medical Association. So he talks to all these organizations. He ends up calling about 12 people in, in the November of 1941 
uh, to have a meeting in his apartment. And he tells him that if they are on board to make sort of an informal organization like this, they can come up with a constitution. But if they don't want to do it, we can all call it quits. We can go get dinner at a nearby hotel. This is literally what he tells them. <laughs> but they are actually on board and they name it the American Gastroscopic Club. They use the word club because they thought it was less pretentious, but Schindler um, <laughs> Schindler wasn't a fan, and other members wanted it, so he just went along with it. Later on, they would change it to the American Gastroscopic Society for to to respect his to respect his memory. Basically, they ended up getting dinner anyways. Murray Ortmeyer was an early member of this club. He's she's one of the twelve people that. Um, he calls to his apartment that day to have that meeting. And um, she would go on to be the first female president in the 50s of the American Gastroscopic Society. So this, I'm talking about this society because it was key in establishing and outlining a standard of training for gastroscopy. And I never thought about this before, but with the introduction of some societies like this, there's a lot of responsibilities. I bring up this point because the American Gastroscopic Society ends up with a very important task of creating a standard of training for this pretty novel and new invention, right? So they write in the Constitution, proper training with the right facilities should include observations of at least 50 cases, knowledge of indications and contraindications, and practical technique and interpretation. I thought it was funny that they only required 50 cases because that would be considered abysmal today. Most gastroenterology fellows probably do hundreds, if not thousands, by the end of their training. The concept of control... But it says control... training mm -hmm. in the right facility should include observation. So maybe they observe 50 first and then assess. I don't know what that means. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So it's there. I, I think they're a little vague on purpose just to have like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, leeway. Yeah. The concept of control of standards of practice was complex and sensitive as, as you can assume. So it's a lot of responsibility for a new society of a new, basically, form of medicine. And it's very interesting to think about and very... Something that I hadn't thought about before. And the culture of medicine at the time, especially in America, was that American physicians wanted to be independent. So you can see why it was so sensitive to sort of create a control of standards of practice. Um, American physicians didn't necessarily take to that very well, but eventually they would. They bring esophagoscopy into the fold into the 50s. Up until then, they were in the domain of ENT doctors, but gastroscopy and other inventions allow more esophageal viewing as well. And in 1957, which is the other inventions that I'm talking about, there's an annual meeting in Colorado Springs where Dr. Hershowitz introduces the first fiber optic scope. So I wanted to, to introduce Heinrich, Heinrich Lamb was a medical student in Munich in the early 1930s, and he had a chance to see Schindler demonstrate his semi-flexible scope and thought it wasn't mobile enough. He actually has the bright idea 
that you can transmit real images point by point from one surface of a glass fiber to the end. That is basically a very novel physics idea. Not exactly sure where it gets the idea, but there are some physicists at the time who are working on something very similar. So I, I think the assumption is that he, he read this in a physics journal. He asked Schindler to fund his project as a third year medical student to be able to do something like this. And Schindler gives him some funds and he buys the fibers from an optical company and gets the help of Walter Gerlach, who is a prominent physician in, in Munich at the time. Another side note on Walter Gerlach, he ends up becoming one of the physicists to work on a German atomic bomb, which there is no German atomic bomb that never ends up going to fruition. But he ends up like part of the Nazi scientist group. He and Gerlach actually try this experiment with a V-shaped filament that was very bright. It was a filament that had electricity running through it. It was very bright. And Aisha, do you want to describe the image that you see on the right? Is that is that a frisbee? It looks like a frisbee almost, like but it's V-shaped. So, so the, the, the image you see on the left is uh, the actual in a filament. And the image you see on the right is the image of the filament that's generated um, by the invention that Heinrich Lamb does. So you can see that it's like not as bright. It's like very wispy. It has a lot of splotches, but the general shape of the V is there. So the, so the thing on the left is the... Is... Yeah, so that's the actual, that's an image of the filament. And that, like the actual filament, the image on the right is what was carried through these glass fibers to the other end. So he basically creates the first fiber optics as a fourth year medical student. But the first, I should say, practical use of fiber optics. Um, it was a theoretical uh, find. In, yeah, there was actually people in Cambridge, uh, Enes Kapani, who was working on it in the 30s, 40s and 50s. But they were basically able to think about it before and theoretically make it. But this is the first application of it. Just to finish off Heinrich Lem, he was a Jewish physician in Germany. And in 1937, he fled to America where he got um, a psychiatry position in Kansas. He ended up moving to the southern tip of Texas to become a physician there afterwards. Um Years later, Schindler recalls that Lamb thought of the idea of fiber optics before, but he says that they failed due to the lack of adequate coating of the glass bundles and the modest input of phys physicists. So now we move on to Basil Hershowitz and fiber optics. Throughout the 30s to the 50s, people are working on fiber optics, as I said. Enes Kapani is a scientist in uh, Britain who was able to derive the theory that a fiber around one micron in diameter could successfully transmit light. H. Hopkins devised an optical unit which could convey images along a flexible axis, so basically a fiber that could move. Though the quality was poor, it was still a flexible axis, so that becomes key later on. Basically, a few years into the 1950s, Basil Hershowitz, who is a South African physician, gets involved. He is so passionate about this idea that he moves to Ann Arbor 
to work with a physicist named C. Wilbur Peters and Larry Curtis in perfecting glass fibers and insulating them properly. He makes the first prototype in 1957, and he actually passes the instrument into his own stomach to test it out. Um, in 1957, he presents it at an American Gastroscopic Society meeting in May, and then within three years, he is able to make the first production model that is commercially available. Now, the first reactions to the fiber optic gastroscope and endoscope is a little mixed reviews. Some thought it was too flexible because it had a tendency to loop into the stomach. There was no rigid part, so you basically ended up creating a J in the stomach sometimes, and you end up looking back up into the esophagus sometimes. But all in all, it had clear advantages of possibly being able to enter into the duodenum even. And that makes all the difference because now you basically have created a pan endoscope, right? And people over the next few years and decades create a lot of modifications to be able to make it a true pan endoscope, meaning you can view the esophagus while you're going down. You can view the stomach and uh, view every part of the stomach, every inch and corner and nook and cranny. And if you advance it further, you can even get into the pylorus, which is able to do with more functionality. So in the 1970s, a lot of modifications are made. Uh, Philip Lopresti creates a four oblique modification where you can control the directionality a little better. Uh, he also adds a channel for suction for air insufflation. And basically, after that, you've created a true pan endoscope. And then Welch Allen in 1983 creates video endoscopy. So up until then, um, like this image, Aisha, do you want to describe this image? Uh, so it's basically the physician is passing a scope down a patient's throat, but he's basically looking through the side hole as they're going down the stomach. But I think what Welch Allen did is basically able to transmit those images to a video screen so you could directly look on the screen. Right, right, right. So video endoscopy, like you just said, is instead of viewing from one end of the endoscope, it's digitally transmitted to a television monitor so you don't have to put your face to any sort of viewing lens or anything like that. And that's created by Welch Allen in 1983. And I'm sure this kind of created a lot of this way. You, they were able to save the images, reproduce images. That helps in training. Yeah, so I, I'm not exactly an expert on on data and saving videos and stuff. But yeah, I'm sure that's that's... One of the thoughts there, being able to save images. Um, so Aisha, I have a question for you. Do you think the first ERCP was done before colonoscopies or colonoscopies were first? I want to say maybe colonoscopies were first. So you would think that because of the number of colonoscopies we do now, colonoscopies were first. But the first ERCP was actually in 1968 and the colonoscopy was in 1966. So you're right. But... It's only like two years. Aisha, do you want to describe what ERCP is to, for our listeners? So ERCP is basically endoscopic retrograde phalangeopancreatography. I know it's a lot of words, but what it basically means is that the same endoscope is now going uh, into your duodenum. Once you enter, enter the duodenum, we are able to enter the biliary tract basically by intubating the ampulla of water. 
and that way we have access to the bilirubin system. Exactly. So actually, in 1966, the ampulla which is the opening that Aisha was mentioning, was identified. And in 1968, William McCune was the first successful endoscopist to cannulate the ampulla. He says, quote, the technique is not easy and requires considerable experience. In 1970, Mashida and Olympus, which are two companies, add more controls and allow for more four-way tip control and allow for higher rates of ampulla cannulation. So it doesn't require as much considerable experience as, as William McCune thought. But there are some complications, but people start understanding the therapeutic possibilities of doing ERCPs. And in 1975, the first successful stone removal is done by David Zyman. You want to describe what stone removal means? So a lot of times um, the gallbladder uh, produces gallstones, which can sometimes get stuck in the biliary tract and the biliary tracts, uh, and which can sometimes cause symptoms and develop cholangitis and things like that. So for that, with, there's a procedure called ERCP with basically stone removal. So that is basically what they're describing here. And removal of the stone basically removes that obstruction and relieves the symptoms. Yeah, so that was 1975. Colonoscopies are not really a thing throughout this whole entire story. So colonoscopies are very difficult to do prior to Hershowitz fibroscope and, the, and fiber optics in general. Because all you had was rigid and semi-rigid scopes that don't go past the sigmoid colon. In 1966, there's these two Italians that basically got a patient to swallow a doubled long polyvinyl tubing, which over a day came out the other end, and they attached a pulley sling to a, to a side-viewing Hirsch gastroscope, and they gently pulled the scope northward to the cecum. It's a very, basically, they created a pulley system in, a, in an entire human being and passed a semi-flexible scope like the Hirsch gastroscope yeah. so that they could view at least a side view of the colon going as far as they can go which I don't know the ethics about this procedure and I don't know what guy they got to basically agree to do this but these two Italians were bold <laughs> colonoscopies are routinely done by 1970s without much complications People start realizing the importance of colon cancer in the 1970s as well after they start doing these colonoscopies. And the first poly polypectomy is done by Wolf and Sinia with a wire loop excision technique. You want to describe what a wire loop excision technique is? So polyps are nothing but small growths which can occur in the colon and Sometimes they can be precancerous. So uh, gastroenterologists, whenever they do colonoscopy, they try to remove these polyps and send it for pathology to see what's going on. So a wire loop polypectomy is basically, it's a heated wire. It's like, it's shaped like a tennis bat, if you want to imagine, but it's really, really tiny. It goes around the polyp. And because of the heat, you're able to snap the polyp. So that was 1971, the first polypectomy. So that sort of brings us up to date with most of the biggest inventions. Um, right now, 
every year we do about 22 million endoscopic procedures in America at least. Hmm. 13 million of them are colonoscopies and 7 million are upper endoscopies. And that's sort of what I'm talking about in the previous topic where we do so we do almost double the number of colonoscopies now. But that was an invention that was much much later than the upper endoscopy. We have We've invented something called the capsule endoscopy. Do you want to describe to our listeners why we invented that and what we use it for now? So basically, capsule endoscopies try to bridge the gap, which the endoscopy and colonoscopy is not able to meet. Endoscopies are able to access up to the duodenum with the endoscopes, but and with the colonoscopes, we can see the large intestine. But about six meters of the small intestine, which is in between, we are not able to access with these scopes. So what a capsule endoscope does is, is basically like a pill-shaped camera which the patient swallows. And as the camera goes through the small intestine, it's taking pictures of the small intestine. Uh, and a lot of times we do this basically to see if there's any small, uh, if there's any growth or if there's any bleeding which is happening from the intestine. Yeah. All these images are transmitted to physicians who, who read them. Thought I would also talk about computer uh, assisted diagnosis since that's the latest trend. An AI model was actually the, like trained on almost eight thousand images from two thousand patients of what a normal colonoscopy is and what um, a polyp looks like. And to backtrack a little bit, with colonoscopy being so important because of precancerous lesions, we need to basically create a very accurate way of discerning those polyps. So right now what what we do is um, basically very highly trained individuals do colonoscopies and through the video monitor, if they detect a polyp, they'll try and excise it with whatever means and send it out for biopsy and see if it's cancer or precancer and basically help patients that way. And that's that's been a great success in, in society. And we've actually saved a lot of people from getting colon cancer. So naturally, uh, people brought AI models into this as well to be able to analyze the video of, of basically people doing this procedure and see if it can also detect these polyps that the human eye can sometimes miss. So there was an AI model, model that was trained on over 8,000 images from 2,000 patients. And it was basically given videos of real-time colonoscopies. And it had a diagnostic accuracy of about 96% and was superior to conventional colonoscopy uh, for polyp detection. So actually, in some, in some endoscopic suites, there are softwares that will sort of light up on the video screen in live time and say, hey, this could be a polyp. And the physician, upon their discretion, can say, yeah, that is a polyp and remove it or say, no, that's just artifact and do nothing about it. So the next big thing is also the creation of more ergonomic equipment. So Aisha, you want to talk more about modern endoscopic potential? I kind of want to expand on what Kansham was earlier mentioning about the modern endoscopic potential. The therapeutic capabilities of endoscopy 
at this point in time, we expand beyond the lumen. Uh, we are able to treat conditions like achalasia. What achalasia is basically is that the muscle fibers in the esophagus, especially the lower esophagus, they are basically very tight. And with endoscopy, we are able to access the submucosal layer and relieve some of that pressure, which helps uh, with the symptoms which come with it. We are also able to resect some tumors as well. We also have now some cool accessories which they can add on to the endoscopes. There is something called like an endocuff. It improves the visualization of the mucosa by mechanically opening up the intestinal folds and helps give us better visualization. One topic which is gaining a lot of popularity on the GI world is ergonomics of the instruments. Um, almost about 39 to 89% of the gastroenterologists report some form of endoscopy-related pain or even injury. And it is more prevalent in the female gastroenterologists. Unfortunately, a lot of instruments are designed in such a way that one size fits all. So what I was trying to imply with this is that one size does not fit all. And a lot of modern day technology is trying to make their designs more ergonomic to bridge these challenges. And also a lot of gastroenterologists, when they are training, they're making sure their position is in a good position. The video is at the appropriate height. They're making some changes in their endoscopy suite and basically trying to incorporate as much of changes as possible to reduce endoscopy related injury. Yeah, I can only imagine how bad like arthritis and things like that get with repetitive use and especially for people with smaller hands. So I just wanted to go over some final thoughts and some of the themes that we explored throughout our two podcast series. It's amazing to me how every successful innovator needed collaboration from engineers, scientists, and other instrument makers. It goes to show how every good invention in medicine is not just a medical invention. It's an engineering invention. It's like a modern day physics invention as well. So collaboration outside of medicine is important to me, something that I learned. I didn't expect colonoscopies to be such a recent development. I expected them to have been going back into the ancient times like endoscopies, but ancient people didn't ever really get past the rectum. You know, they didn't really know the inside of the anatomy unless it was through dissections and autopsies. Another interesting thing that I learned was how people look to you for standards of care and education if you create a new society around a new invention or a new innovation. I never thought of that as part of the process for being innovative, that you have to create a standard of care. And especially in our field, you have to create a standard of education as well, too. How many endoscopies should a person do before they're qualified to do them on their own? How many uh, techniques do they have to learn? And how precise do they have to be? And they have to create a standard of care. And that's very important in, in any innovation or in any invention and finally um i wanted to say that most of my sources came from this book a brief history of endoscopy by urban m modlin um, this book is published by the american society for gastrointestinal endoscopy and aisha do you know what the original name for the american society for gastrointestinal endoscopy was yes American Gastroscopic Club. <laughs> yes.
The same one was that... was founded in Schindler's apartment? Yes, Schindler's Google? apartment. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've come full circle. All right. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to History of Present Illness. We would like to thank everyone who helped us with our podcast, including Kavya and Roshan. I would love to welcome our new producer, Neep Patel, to HPI. He's a third-year internal medicine resident, and we are very lucky to have him. Our goal is to release an episode once per month at the end of the month. Because of our busy schedules, we might delay by a week or two. Stay tuned and please follow us on Instagram, Threads, or Twitter at HPI Podcast. Look out for updates on a new TikTok account. You can also email us at historyofpresentillness at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, especially if you have any suggestions for future episodes. Thank you.